0: How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the Internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did synchronized swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create The Wrap Dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, Peer-to-Peer Conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers, because history matters.
0: Hello, I'm David Rubenstein, and I'm going to be in conversation today with Robert M. Gates, who is the 22nd Secretary of Defense in our country? He is also a person who served as Secretary of Defense for both a Democratic president, President Obama, and a Republican president, George W. Bush. He has a new book out called The Exercise of Power, and we're going to talk about that and other things that Bob Gates has on his mind relating to national security. Bob, thank you very much for coming today. David, happy to be with you. So, in full disclosure, I should tell everybody when, uh, before Bob Gates became a very famous uh, Secretary of Defense and was one of the leading statesmen of the world. He worked in the White House with me some 40 years ago. Both of us had darker hair in those days, I think, if I remember correctly. Uh, Bob was working as an assistant to Zbigniew Brzezinski in one of the smallest offices in the West Wing, uh, also known as a telephone booth office. And I was working as a deputy to Stuart Eisenstadt with an office about the same size. So as you look at this incredible career, and we'll talk about your book in a moment, which deals with a separate subject, What would you say is something you're the most proud of having achieved or the two or three things you're most proud of having achieved in this illustrious career as Secretary of Defense, head of the CIA, among other things?
1: Well, I've led three really large institutions, and I would say one thing out of each of them. The first, uh, when I led the intelligence community, I became director of central intelligence uh, six weeks before the Soviet Union collapsed, and although I wasn't director for terribly long, I basically reoriented the entire intelligence community away from a singular focus on the Soviet Union uh, to a very different world that we would face uh, after the Cold War. Uh, As president of Texas A&M, we vastly expanded uh, the space on the university campus. We dramatically increased diversity of the student body and significantly increased the size of the faculty. We added 450 uh, tenure track faculty in the four and a half years I was there and then as secretary of defense uh, there were a number of things but i think I think the most gratifying thing for me was to be able to take the actions that saved the lives of a lot of our soldiers and marines and airmen and uh, and sailors uh, in terms of more heavily armored vehicles decreased medevac times and so on so i think I think the proudest title I walked away from my entire career with uh, was, uh, after I left defense, being called
0: the soldier's secretary. Well, let's talk about your secretary of defense tenure for a moment. Uh, when anybody is the secretary of defense, um, inevitably, uh, some soldier will die during your tenure. And you came in when we were still in the middle of a very hot war in Iraq. Um, what is it like to have to either notify or communicate with or write a letter about uh, some soldier that's died? Is that the toughest thing you have to do as secretary of defense? There were three tough things, David. One was uh,
1: visiting wounded soldiers and Marines in the hospitals, uh, some of them really grievously wounded, and encountering their families there. The second uh, was writing letters of condolence uh, to their parents, and then the third, I tried to go to as many funerals at Arlington as I could uh, to express the nation's gratitude to parents or a wife and, and children and. So all of those things were very difficult. When I became secretary and we started the surge in Iraq, we were losing um, on the order of more than 100 soldiers and sailors and Marines uh, and airmen a a, a month. So every night I would go home and um, I wanted to feel like it was very personal in terms of communicating with them. So I hand wrote uh, the condolence letters and tried to know something personal about each of the each of the men and women that, uh,
0: that I wrote about. So if somebody is watching this and says, I'd like to be Bob Gates when I grow up a young person, I want to be a leader. I'd like to be secretary of defense or head of the CIA or a well-respected international authority. What are the, the, the leadership traits that you think somebody should have who's rising up and aspires to have that kind of career? Well, I think, I think like almost anybody who's been successful, uh, you have to do all
1: the hard work of preparation, and then and then the, the future is open. You have to take risks. You have to look for opportunities. You have to have mentors and people you learn from. Uh, and I tell a lot of young people is that it's not it's not sufficient to have a mentor as you go through life. You need uh, mentors always two or three levels above where you are, or in a different place than you are so that you can continue to learn from them and they can continue to help you so i like to i like to tell people my first mentor was a
0: gs-15 at cia and my last mentor was president of the united states so let's talk about your book the exercise of power now since you left uh government you've written is this your third or fourth book fourth book fourth book so the main thesis of your book is if i could summarize it for a moment tell me if this is correct Essentially, since the end of the Cold War, the United States has been for quite some time the dominant economic, military, and geopolitical power in the world. But we've tried to control what goes on in the world through our military power and not through our geopolitical, economic, or what some people would call soft power. And you think that's a mistake, and we've unfortunately gotten into wars maybe we could have avoided. Is that the essence of your, your thesis? David, that that is pretty much it. It is that we have over militarized our foreign
1: policy and further that uh, we did not fully appreciate the importance of the non-military instruments of power during the Cold War. In retrospect, we did not appreciate how important a role they played during the Cold War. And so after the end of the Cold War, we basically dismantled many of those capabilities. The Congress eliminated the United States Information Agency in 1998. They tried to eliminate USAID uh, in 1999. Clinton didn't agree to that, but then subordinated USAID to the State Department. So, so these tools that served us so well in, in being successful against the Soviet Union, we essentially dismantled after the end of the Cold War. Now we find ourselves in a long-term rivalry with countries, and particularly China, where we have to avoid a military conflict for all the same reasons we needed to avoid one with the Soviet Union, but they are in a much better position than we today in terms of
0: those non-military instruments of power. So, uh, since the end of the Cold War, has there been some president who recognized the importance of what Joe Nye has called soft power, the non-military kinds of things, or did no president really recognize it? And did any president really try to do more with soft power, or in the end, nobody really could do as much as you think they should have done? Well, I think, I think none of the four have done as much as they should
1: have done, but I will say the one exception was uh, President George W. Bush, who after 9-11, as part of the global war on terror Uh, strengthened the State Department, added a number of additional foreign service officers, uh, also increased the USAID budget fairly significantly. Uh, It had reached its nadir, the lowest point it had ever been in 2000, the budget for USAID, and it it dramatically increased under Bush. Um, But subsequently, uh, there really haven't been any increases uh, in any of those programs.
0: So let's suppose uh, the next president of the United States, whoever that's going to be, um, says to you, you know what, I read your book, or I had it summarized for me if they didn't read the book, (laughs) and you you know, some pretty good ideas in there. Uh, Tell me what I should do uh, at the beginning of my administration to kind of implement some of your ideas. Give me one or two things that I could do to kind of go down the direction you think the president should go down. What would you recommend to that person? Well, I think I think it
1: needs to be a uh, it, it it needs to be a broad strategy. So my recommendation would be putting together a a group of uh, senior members of Congress and senior people from the administration to develop a a plan or a a strategy very much along the lines that was done in 1947 that led to the passage of the National Security Act uh, under President Truman and it passed through Congress without much difficulty. But I think you have to get the key players together and to understand what needs to be done. And and one of those things clearly is to strengthen the State Department. But it's not just more money and people. I believe the State Department needs to be dramatically reformed and restructured. Uh, the, The national security structure that we have today, as I just mentioned, was created to fight the Cold War in 1947. We need a completely different structure, a a different way of looking at it. For example, the notion that in 2020, the Secretary of the Treasury or no official dealing with economic affairs is a member
0: of the National Security Council makes no sense whatsoever. Now, in your career in government, you've obviously met a lot of impressive people in the foreign policy world, defense world, uh, in our country, and people, I presume, overseas. Are there one or two people that you would like to cite as people that you really think are role models for the job that they did and you'd say they are really, really talented people who helped our country in these areas? And are there one or two people you would cite overseas who you were very impressed with uh, in terms of their intellectual ability or their ability to negotiate for their country? What I'm gonna say is not going to come as a surprise to anyone. I,
1: I think, you know, I worked for eight presidents beginning with Lyndon Johnson and ending with President Obama and, and I think that the President, in terms of foreign affairs and national security affairs that that did the best job was President George H. w. Bush um, uh, by a long shot, although I must say as a strategist, Ronald Reagan was pretty strong also, uh, but in terms of national security advisor uh, um, I think Brent Scowcroft was probably the model uh, and not just because he not because he didn't have strong views but because everybody else trusted him to represent them well and honestly to the president and and to ensure that he didn't use his access to the president to backbite or disparage them. I think George Shultz was a great secretary of state. I think uh, Jim Baker was a great secretary of state. Um, I think Condi Rice was a, a very effective secretary of state. Uh, overseas, uh, one of the people that I was able to know, uh, thanks to George H. W. Bush, was Margaret Thatcher. Uh, Thatcher was just incredibly impressive. In the Middle East, I think that Yitzhak Rabin in Israel was one of the people that I found most impressive, as as is the Crown Prince of uh, of the UAE, Mohammed bin Zayed.
0: So Henry Kissinger found a way to avoid uh, controversy and fighting between the State Department and the NSC. He had both jobs, Secretary of State and the NSC advisor. You think that's a good technique or a good way to move things forward? No, I think that's a terrible idea, and so did President Ford.
1: The National Security Advisor, somebody has to be, in effect, the honest broker, ensuring that the president hears from the Defense Department, the intelligence community, the State Department, uh, and that those views are integrated and brought to the president in a fair and forthright way. And I think that you can't do that if you're double-hatted. Uh, Secretary of State and and uh, National Security Advisor, but I must say, one of the recommendations that I make in the book is that a restructured State Department would, in fact, have a much more powerful Secretary of State because the State Department would be the hub of a of a number of activities that require a whole of government coordination. But somebody has to be in charge, and and that somebody ought to be in the State Department, in my view. My my example in the book is is the when one of the successes of the last 30 years was President Bush's uh, initiative to deal with AIDS in Africa. And the reason it was successful was that he appointed a single person in the government as the coordinator with budgetary and programmatic authority. That person was in the State Department, but had authority over all the different agencies uh, that had a piece of the action. And I think that really worked really well and I think could be a model for for other t- uh,
0: areas of government activity as well. In your book, you talk about China as you know the most important U.S. Uh, bilateral relationship and probably the most important bilateral relationship in the world. Do you think after the presidential election uh, that the low relationships we now have with China, the really poor nadir we have in terms of the state of the relationship, Will improve, and what would you recommend that a president do to improve the relationship with China? Well, you know, David,
1: uh, Xi Jinping has done something that no other person in the world has been able to do, and that's bring together the Republicans and the Democrats and the Congress in agreement on something. And that's on a tougher line with China. And and in all candor, my view is it's mainly because the Chinese have been especially aggressive uh, under Xi Jinping over the last couple of years, whether it's the moves they've made on Hong Kong. The intimidating measures they're taking vis-a-vis Taiwan and the South China Sea, uh, their wolf warrior diplomacy, as they call it, uh, in Europe, and trying to intimidate the Europeans and the Australians and others. Uh, so I think I think the, the the whole purpose or the whole effort on the part of the United States, first of all, needs to be to to get this relationship in a place where I w- that I would describe as peaceful coexistence or peaceful cohabitation the notion we are going to be rivals we are going to be competitors but we have to avoid a military conflict and acknowledge that we're each going to exist in this world together and how do we put some guardrails on this
0: relationship so it doesn't doesn't get out of control many people would say that that for the last 40 or 50 years or so the most unstable part of the world has been the middle east some people might say it's the last 1000 years or so but over the last 50 years, there have been a lot of wars there, and uh, there's been a lot of uh, angst about what the right thing for the U.S. to do is. But right now, the biggest challenge to the United States seems to be from Iran. So if you were advising the next president, what would you tell that president to do about the nuclear agreement that we had with Iran or generally about how to contain Iran in terms of its uh, ambitions? I think that the first step uh, that I would recommend to a, to a new president
1: is to is to open the door to a new negotiation with Iran. I don't think we ought to try and recreate uh, the agreement that uh, or revive the agreement that uh, President Obama signed. I think we ought to uh, negotiate a new agreement, one that uh, has no time constraint on it, that basically says the Iranians will give up their nuclear capability indefinitely. And also, that provides for any time, any place inspections so we know that they're not cheating. The Obama administration, that was part of their negotiating position just a few months before the deal was signed, and, and it was abandoned during the course of it. So, I think having a more ambitious agreement like that, but also partnered with the idea of lifting sanctions and so on, uh, I think uh, would be the way to go. At, at a minimum, it would improve our relationship with our allies. Uh, and, and I think it could be done in a way that doesn't alarm uh, our friends in the Middle East.
0: Now, you are right about Afghanistan, and uh, that has been the longest war in our country's history. But in hindsight, would you say that Afghanistan was worth all the blood and, 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 and toil and effort and money that we expended in it?
1: Well, I think, first of all, the, the decision to invade Afghanistan and to drive out the Taliban and, the, and al-Qaeda was the right thing to do. Uh, the United States had been attacked for the first time by a foreign enemy, uh, the continental United States, for the first time since the War of 1812. And I think it was critically important that, that uh, the world be shown we would not take a hit like that and not respond uh, appropriately. What I argue is that, that we actually had accomplished all of our objectives, uh, and I think more, by early 2002. Uh, the Afghans had come together and selected a government, uh, put together a governmental process. They had all the different warlords and factions had come together in agreement and, and choosing Karzai as their leader. That government had international recognition. Uh, it had a number of countries that uh, were prepared to provide uh, financial and security assistance and so on. And I think that's the point at which we said, should have turned it over to, some, to the uh, UN or some international body. I think what happened though was a decision that we would try and change Afghanistan that we would bring modern democracy a more modern government to Afghanistan one that had a strong central government where uh, corruption was under control and so on and frankly those ambitions uh, I think were uh, quite unrealistic in the time
0: period that we had and and trying to do it primarily through the military. Now, after 9-11, which obviously let us go into Afghanistan, we also invaded Iraq. And you became Secretary of Defense uh, when that war was not going so well. In hindsight, do you think the decision to invade Iraq was a good one? And if you did think it was a good decision, what do you think went wrong in the implementation of the effort to uh, get rid of Saddam Hussein? Well, I write in the book that I think there were there were several opportunities that uh,
1: prior to two thousand and three, uh, when we could have taken action to try and uh, and get control of whatever Saddam was doing with weapons of mass destruction without invading the country, uh, when when the inspectors were thrown out by Saddam Hussein in nineteen ninety eight, uh, at the end of nineteen ninety eight, uh, the United States and the and Britain. Uh, launched several days of military attacks and then stopped and and uh, all the inspectors were out and so the inspection regime essentially disappeared for the first time since the end of the of the Gulf War if we had continued that military attack on iraqi military units we could have told the iraqi military we will continue to destroy you until you let the inspectors back in and and they can go anywhere they want that same approach could have been taken by George W. Bush before the invasion of, of going after using simply air power to go after their military capabilities until the pain got so high for the Iraqi military that they agreed to let the inspectors back in. So I think there were opportunities to deal with the weapons of mass destruction problem short of an invasion. By the same token there, I think, again, as in Afghanistan. Once we got rid of Saddam Hussein, we then decided we had to leave Iraq in a better place than we found it a modern democracy, a a capable government, and so on and so forth. And so I think one of the challenges, frankly, that I write about in the book that really began under President Clinton and was continued under President Bush was this hubris that led us to believe that we could bring democracy and change the culture of other countries and do so at the point of a gun. Under Clinton, it was in Somalia and Haiti, uh, and to a lesser extent in some places in the Balkans, under President Bush, obviously in Afghanistan and in Iraq. And I think that was one of the fundamental mistakes post-Cold War that we made, was this belief that we could remake the world in our image.
0: Now, uh, as this century was beginning, a man became the head of Russia named uh, Vladimir Putin. Did you ever think that he would preside for 20 years and may preside for another 20 years at the rate he's going? What is the reason he's been able to be so uh, successful in staying in power? Well, I think, I think at the beginning, uh, there,
1: were, there were a couple of things that worked in his favor. Uh, the first was, if the Russians dislike anything, it's disorder. And what they saw in the early and mid 1990s, uh, regions were pulling away from Moscow in terms of central control, where the oligarchs had taken control of the economy, and the and the average citizen was suffering enormously, and and crime was out of sight. And so I think what what Putin appealed to was the Russian desire to get rid of this chaos and to restore order. And so the first thing he did was bring the governors under control in the various regions and then he brought the oligarchs under control. And in doing so and the way and the exercise of presidential power that he used to assert those authorities uh, led him to have an authoritarian control that he has
0: only strengthened since then. For as long as you've been in government and as long as I've been uh focusing on these kind of issues, Israel has had problems with its neighbors and Israel and Palestine have not really ever come to a peace agreement. Uh, We've just reached an agreement like the United States did with UAE, so that the UAE and and Israel recognize each other, the same with Israel and Bahrain. Uh, Do you think that other countries in the Middle East will recognize Israel? And do you see any prospect of an Israel agreement with the Palestinian Authority at any time in our lifetime? I think part of the problem that that Israel has and that the Palestinians have is
1: that, um, as Bibi Netanyahu would say, which Palestinians am I talking to? Am I talking to the West Bank Palestinians who we might be able to negotiate something with? Or am I talking to Hamas in Gaza that wants to see Israel destroyed? I I think it's actually kind of an intellectual and uh, geostrategic breakthrough that In terms of this relationship, the new relationship between Israel and the UAE and Bahrain, in the sense that it has taken place, saying that the Palestinian issue is not going to stand in the way of of a better future for the rest of the Middle East. And the part of the problems, in my view, really rest with the Palestinians. The Palestinians were given a deal worked out by Bill Clinton in December of two thousand with uh, Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak that gave the Palestinians about 85 percent of what they wanted, and they could not, Yasser Arafat could not bring himself to say yes. There have been several other occasions where we've come close to an agreement, but the Palestinians just can't say yes. And so I think the notion of the Middle East moving on and sort of setting aside the Palestinian issue uh, for for the time being, or maybe for a longer period of time, is actually opening the way to some real progress in the Middle East. And I and I hope and believe that there will be other countries that uh, that normalize relations with Israel.
0: After World War II, the United States joined with Western European countries to create NATO. Some people have said that NATO has outlived its usefulness; it's not that effective. What is your assessment? as a former Secretary of Defense of the uh, viability and value of NATO. My last speech
1: to NATO when I was Secretary of Defense, uh, I told them that I am the last senior American official you will ever encounter who has a an emotional attachment to NATO because I was there for the last half of the Cold War and saw the role that our allies played. But I said, your unwillingness to accept your responsibilities in terms of security and paying for your own military, you're gonna have a new generation of members of Congress and in the White House of politicians in America who are gonna look at this relationship with a cost-benefit analysis, and you're going to come up short because you're not doing your part. So I think
0: the calls for them to do more are absolutely justified, and and they have been doing some more. Let me return for one final question about the Middle East. Some people say that the United States blinked twice on Syria, that we had a chance under President Obama and President Trump to show um, greater concern about the use of chemical weapons or other things that were weapons of mass destruction, you might say. Do you think the United States lost a lot of credibility in the Middle East because of the way we handled Syria, or do you think those were the right decisions by the president's?
1: I think overall the decision not to get involved in the Syrian civil war was the right decision. I think there was a very brief period early in the civil war, perhaps in the in the late summer of 2012, when a very aggressive covert action to su- supply weapons to the Syrian opposition could have turned the balance against Assad or created a circumstance in which he might have negotiated some kind of a political outcome that gave a role in government to the opposition. I think that was a very narrow window. And once we missed it, I think it was correct not to engage U.S. military forces. I think another mistake that was made was uh, President Obama's drawing a red line in terms of the Syrians' use of chemical weapons and then allowing Assad to cross that red line without consequences.
0: Well, speaking of difficult people to deal with for the United States, I should have asked you about. Kim Jong-un, who is the leader, I think we think he's still alive and still the leader in North Korea. So uh, do you see any way in the world that the United States will ever convince the North Koreans to give up their nuclear weapons? No. Um,
1: For the last 25 years, under four presidents, four very different presidents, we have tried every conceivable diplomatic strategy to try and bring about uh, North Korean denuclearization. And every time when all is said and done, we have failed. So I think the question is, you know, the old definition of insanity was doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different outcome. My view is maybe we ought to accept the fact that they are never going to give up their nuclear weapons. And can we negotiate that number of weapons down to a very small number, limit their ballistic missile tests, and get on-site or any time, any place inspections to ensure that they're not cheating, to contain and control the North Korean nuclear threat rather than to continue to pretend that we can get rid of it. You know, Kim Jong un looks at Gaddafi. He gave up his nuclear weapons. He's dead. His regime is gone. Saddam never had nuclear weapons. He's dead. His regime is gone. There is nothing in any of these circumstances that would lead Kim Jong un or any in the North Korean regime to believe that giving up all of their nuclear weapons is a good idea.
0: So let me ask you a final question, Bob. Um, Let's suppose the next president of the United States calls you up and says, Bob, I got a clean slate. I can start with anything. What is the biggest thing I should worry about, the first thing I should do in terms of geopolitical things? What is the number one thing I should do? What would you tell the next president of the United States he should do? David, in all honesty, I think that the, the pr-
1: first priority of the next president is to try and figure out how to reach across the aisle and, and begin to get some things done here in this country. I think one of the greatest tools the Chinese have right now is being able to point to the United States and say, these guys can't get anything done. They can't tackle immigration. They can't tackle infrastructure education or a host of other issues. And frankly, if we can't get our act together here at home, if we can't begin to show the rest of the world that our system actually works and that we can solve our problems, there is no foreign threat in my opinion that's more uh, a threat to the United States and our well-being in future than than that paralysis in Washington. So my advice to the next president would be These other problems, you can deal with these other problems. We have time to deal with these international problems. But the critical issue is, how do you begin to bring the American people and particularly the Congress back together in a way that we can actually get something done?
0: Bob, you've had an extraordinary career. And I want to thank you as a citizen for what you've done for our country. And I really want to thank you for putting a lot of it in your books. Uh, The Exercise of Power is a book I really enjoyed. And I want to thank you for being here with us today in conversation. Thanks a lot, David. I really enjoyed it. On behalf of the New York
1: Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a History Podcast, hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. You can share your thoughts at public.programs@nyhistory.org. at